I was uh, challenged by a good friend of mine, probably a good friend of yours as well, Grace Komalafi, who said, Hugh, where's all the material that you preached on uh, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers? And I suddenly realized that most of the messages I've preached on that, I've preached overseas. I've preached that in Trinidad. I've preached it in various other places. And we don't actually have a lot of material from Malachi 4 that I've preached in the UK. So as I was thinking about what we needed to do in this teaching series, I thought I'd really like to visit Malachi 4.6, where it talks about the hearts of the fathers being turned to the children and the hearts of the children being turned to the fathers. So that's what we're going to be doing. But if you pick up my catalogue, and uh, there is a small price for that because it did cost quite a lot to produce, and the idea is that you get the catalogue and you can see what's on offer in that catalogue. If you look at the back of the catalogue, and this, this took us up to a couple of years ago, but the, by that time I'd done about 83 series that are in that catalogue. This is quite apart from the individual tapes that I've done. You'll see that I've covered just about every book in the Bible. But there's one book in the Bible I haven't actually covered in depth, and that's Malachi. So again, that was another reason why I thought, well, if we're going to have to pick up on Malachi 4.6 for grace, then we need to also look at Malachi as well to help us understand how it fits in the whole scheme of Scripture. So over the next six nights, we are going to be covering just about everything that Malachi says about anything, but particularly focusing on that verse where it says about the hearts of the fathers being turned to the children and the hearts of the children being turned to the fathers. So the theme we're looking at is God's heart for fathers and children, and we're looking at the real setting for Malachi 4.6, which obviously is the whole context of the book, the whole prophecy that Malachi brings to us. So we'll be going through these different topics, the power of envisioning. You see I'm starting with the last chapter first here. The power of commitment as we go back to chapter 1 tomorrow night. Power of faithfulness as we move into chapter 2. Power of refinement as we move into chapter 3. And then the power of restoration, still in chapter 3. And then the final part of chapter 3 when we're looking at the power of encouragement. So that's the outline. And tonight, because this screen's going up, I'm just going to tell you where we are. So if you think you get lost, you'll be able to find it. And on the side screens, it'll tell you. We're going to look at the power of envisioning tonight from Malachi 4, 1 to 6. And the points I want to bring out for you are, first of all, that there's a day of total reversal. Secondly, there's a day of rediscovered righteousness. And then finally, a day of rejoicing over reconciliation. So if you, you know where we're heading, if I get lost, you can help me. <laughs> All right, I don't intend to, but I actually got lost for the first time when I was preaching in about 40 years. I started on an illustration. I got halfway through the illustration. I couldn't remember where I was going to go with it. And I've never, ever done that before. I don't know what it was. It must have been... Uh, particularly sort of excitable bunch that I was preaching to. They got so carried away with the illustration that by the time I'd finished the illustration, I couldn't remember what the point of it was. But uh, I'm sure most preachers have had it. It's just that I ran out of bluff at that point, which is unusual for a preacher because you can normally bluff your way through anything. But uh, as I, I spoke to a certain bishop yesterday and he said to me, tell me about that man over there. I said, I'll tell you what I know, but when you run out of that, you'll have to bluff. He says, well, that's what I do all of the time anyway. So, <laughs> so anyway, so I hope that's given you a helpful sign. So we'll uh, wait for the little red light on the camera, and then I'll know that we're, we're ready to start. If you want to look intelligent, do find Malachi, you know. <laughs> it, it is an easy one to find, actually, so you don't have to rummage around in your Bible for too long. Great. I'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. I'm going to introduce the series. 
where we're going to be looking at that great verse in verse 6 of chapter 4, where it says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. But we're going to be looking at that in the context of everything that Malachi says. Because I believe it all focuses in on that last verse. It's as if everything he says before leads up to that great verse. And I'm excited about that verse because if there was one scripture which I believe is one that we need to get hold of today, it's Malachi 4.6. And, and, you know, over the years, I mean, I've been in ministry over 40 years, and I've, I've seen times when I felt that we were getting close to this. I've seen times when I felt, wow, this is exciting. I've never seen the hearts of the fathers turn towards their spiritual children as effectively as I'm seeing it at the moment. But unfortunately, at that particular point, the children's hearts weren't that much turned towards the fathers. And then I've seen other times when it seems as if it went the other way, and the, the hearts of the spiritual sons were saying to the fathers, Come on, mentor us, take us forward. But it seemed at that point the fathers were preoccupied with other things. And I've just been longing for the day when this actually connects. And I can see the hearts of the fathers turning to the children and the hearts of the children turning to the fathers. I believe that that's what the Lord is waiting for. I believe that's so much what's on his heart. I believe it's what we need. We've been through so many different challenges in waiting for this. You know, some of us who should have been spiritual fathers were so reluctant to take on that role that we sort of played the boy forever. You know, I I was falling into that danger. In fact, I think one of the reasons that God made me a grandfather early was to make me face up to responsibilities of being a father by saying, now look, you're a grandfather now. Now, come on. It's about time when people said to you, I look to you as a father. You didn't back off and say, no, 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 no. I want to be one of the boys. It's amazing how many preachers want to be one of the boys. I think it's partly the way that John wrote in his letter, young men, you're strong. You've overcome the evil one. The word of God dwells in you. And you think, yeah, that's what I want to be. And then it says, fathers, you've known him who's from the beginning. And that just seems tame by comparison. And you think, I want to be there. I want to be that young man forever. You know, God's Peter Pan. And yet, really, God wants there to be fathers. And some of us had challenges. You know, when we were pioneering the charismatic movement back in the 60s and early 70s, a lot of people who would have been our spiritual fathers looked at us and thought, you know, we don't really want you to be our spiritual sons because we don't agree with where you're going and what you're doing. And so there's a whole generation of leaders that came forth who didn't really have people that were backing them as spiritual fathers. And now they're trying to take on the responsibility for spiritual fatherhood and sometimes struggling with it. So I really believe that this is such a key passage. And if we can get to grips with this and find out how fathers should have hearts turned to children and children should have hearts turned to fathers. I'm thinking in the spiritual context, which is where I believe that Malachi is really pointing. This isn't just talking about ordinary family life, although that is important too, and I don't want to decry that. But I believe there's an emphasis here. So we're going to read from chapter 3, verse 13, because it'll set the context. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a summary of everything that you get in the book of Malachi. It gives you a taste of what's to come. And when we've looked at this passage, I'll say a little bit about how we're going to go through the whole series. And then we're going to move into the message that I want to to bring across today. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say... What have we spoken against you? You've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and that we've waited as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And that day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. I was preaching in China recently and uh, I wanted to preach on a particular passage and the interpreter turned to me as, uh, uh, as we were going through and said, we don't do this passage with these, um, these pastors. And I was a little bit surprised. And then I realized that, you know, sometimes it's difficult putting certain passages across. But I don't want us to have no, uh, I don't want us to have no-go areas. I want us to say if it's there, we need to look at it. And if we don't understand it, we've got to grapple with it until we get to it. And I can see why people don't preach on the first part of Malachi 4. It's much more exciting to go straight to the last part. And then they don't even preach on the whole verse. You know, you get the hearts of the fathers will be turned and the hearts of the children will be turned. And you don't mention, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse, because we just don't want to go there. And as for all that bit about burning ovens and stubble being consumed and trampling on the wicked, it's better to leave that out. You know, this might be the last page of the Old Testament, but it's still the Old Testament. And praise God, we've turned the page and we're in the new one. I agree with that, totally. But we've still got to understand it. Because it isn't a different God in the New Testament from the God that's in the Old Testament. This is the same God. It might be a new covenant, same God, operating in a new dispensation. So there are things that we have to take on board and we have to face some of these verses and understand these verses. But I understand them in terms of a, a great reversal. I think, really, this is where I'd want to spell it out. In fact, there are three things I'd want to bring out from Malachi 4. First of all, I would say, there's a great reversal. There's a turnaround, something that we need to recognize in that. It's a day of reversals that's being spoken about. That great day, that that. Great and dreadful day of the Lord is a day of reversals when things are turned around. When the first will be last and the last will be first and the top will be the bottom and the bottom will be the top and God turns everything round. It's a day of reversals. Second thing I'd want to bring out and we'll pick up on each of these in turn is that it's also a day of rediscovered righteousness. And I'm looking forward to that day. (laughs) And it's also going to be a day of rejoicing over reconciliation. When the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children, the children, it's going to be that day. 
A day where we rejoice over the reconciliation. So let's use those as, as, as basic pointers as we go through this chapter. It's a day of great reversals. You see, when we read that passage, we need to bear in mind what has been the order up until this point in time. The reality is this, that for generation after generation, the wicked have been on top and the righteous have been underneath. And when God says that you're going to trample the wicked, it's only because these are people that have been experiencing the wicked trampling them day in, day out, day in, day out, year in, year out. And God is going to call a day when he says enough is enough. And it's not going to be like that anymore. All the people that have laid down their lives for the gospel, the blood of the martyrs, there's going to be something that turns everything around and God says that pattern will not persist. Now when I was doing student missions in a lot of different places, I found that I couldn't do a student mission without at some point having to talk about the second coming. Now, I know that most people doing missions would shy away from that because it's a difficult concept. But, you know, there's something even more difficult than talking about the second coming. And that's being left with that question, how can a God of love allow so much suffering in the world? Now, when that question is left in the air, people do not turn to the Lord because they're saying, I need that question answered. And to be honest, that is so often the question. There are people out there who would turn to the Lord if they had that one answered. How can a God of love that you're talking about allow so much suffering? And when you've got that question, you have to preach the cross. But when you preach the cross, you also need to preach the resurrection. But when you preach the resurrection, you also need to preach the second coming. Because the reality is that until there's a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, we are going to see topsy-turvy, crazy suffering because the fall has introduced things into this world which God had never intended. And he is allowing, in his grace, this world to continue because he knows a day will come when he will set it all right. But it's his grace that allows us to continue in this present position because it gives an opportunity for people to repent and come to the Lord. Because when we hit that great day, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, it will be the day of final reckoning. There's no reckoning beyond that reckoning. And so that's why the Lord is waiting. But you have to talk about this to people because otherwise it seems a nonsense. How can a God of love allow so much suffering? Well, the answer is, in the end, he won't. In the end, it's all going to turn around. But the suffering is endemic. You know, you can sit in the sun and you can end up with skin cancer. You don't just end up, you know, sort of turning a nice shade that makes you think it's better than going to the tanning shop or something like that. You know, you can get skin cancer. You can stand on the coast of Cornwall. And I love the Cornish coast. I love those great Atlantic rollers coming in. But I know someone who stood on the Cornish coast and got swept out to sea and then had to be rescued. Now, I was glad they were rescued because not everyone survives. But you see the tremendous strength and beauty of nature. But within that strength and beauty, 
there's still this destruction which has come in from the fall. And it's only when we get a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness that we're going to say there will be no more suffering. When every tear will be wiped away. And that day is a day that we need to look forward to. Because it is a day of reversal. It's a day when that which has been down will be brought up, that which is last will be made first, and there will be a turnaround. So don't lose heart. Now, there's so much in this book of Malachi that absolutely amazes me. Particularly when you realize that Malachi was prophesying during the days of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, to me, is one of the great glory stories of the Old Testament. This was at a time when, having seen the whole of Jerusalem in ruins, the people start coming back to rebuild the city. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. There's great rejoicing. There's great celebration. Now, you would have thought that this would be the high point of spirituality in the Old Testament. You know, one of the things I love to teach at Bible colleges is the restoration. I think the restoration is brilliant. All of those great passages in Isaiah about they shall return and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. And yet the reality was very different. We read what Haggai said as he had to stir people up to build the temple. We read what Zechariah said as he had to stir people up to build the temple. But Malachi was prophesying roughly in the same time span, probably just after them. It seems that once the temple was rebuilt, once the walls were rebuilt, people adopted an attitude which was not really what it should have been. And it was incredible. As you read through Malachi, and I really do urge you to read this book, not just the favorite verses, you know. If you want to preach on giving, you go to the tithe passage. You know, if you want to really preach on what Jesus did, you go to the messenger passage. But let's read the whole book and see what it's saying. And one of the things that comes up in this book is that disillusionment can creep in so quickly. Now, these people had been through the exile. The whole nation had been punished for its sin. It had been carried off into Babylon. And they'd spent 70 years in Babylon. Some people spent even longer than that. The people that were left behind in Jerusalem had a worse deal than the people who went to Babylon. Some went to Egypt, some went to Babylon, some stayed in Jerusalem. It was a bad deal wherever you were. And they all understood that a righteous God will bring judgment. But you know what they discovered? When they came back into the land, they built the temple, they put the walls up, they discovered that wickedness seemed to go unpunished. That instead of God coming down, you know, we might say like a ton of bricks every time someone did something wrong, you know, we've got the idea of this punishment now, you know, you upset God, he sends you into exile for 70 years. But they come back, they're living now, new temple, new walls, new built city, and they discover that God is so gracious that he doesn't come down like that on people. That the proud, they seem to prosper. The wicked seem to do well. They even discover that you can offer dodgy offerings to God and God does not come down and strike you with fire. So as you read the book of Malachi, what seems to be coming across is that, well, why not compromise? Because compromise doesn't seem to bring much judgment. We've got a God who lets you get away with it. 
But their attitude was that they were not very pleased that God let them get away with it. Or let's put it like this. They were quite pleased that God let them get away with it, but they weren't that pleased that God let other people get away with it. (laughs) Which is the mentality that we often have, isn't it? How can you let that person get away with that? Why don't you do this to them? And God's just thinking, God, if I just treated you the way that you wanted me to treat him, you would be squashed flat. But God is so gracious. And we can misunderstand that. And this kind of disillusionment was getting in. It was soaking into the nation. So much so that the people who really loved God and really believed God just couldn't credit what was going on around them. People who were meant to be their spiritual fathers and the leaders in the nation seem to have gone over to this mentality where anything would do. The priests were offering offerings that shouldn't have been offered. Do you know one of the things that they did? This is incredible. You can read this in Nehemiah. In fact, some people believe that Malachi gave his prophecy at a time when Nehemiah was fulfilling his obligation to go back and report to the king in Babylon. Do you remember how the book of Nehemiah begins? He asked the king for permission to go and rebuild the walls. And he says, I'll come back. Well, at the end of the book of Nehemiah, he does come back. And some people believe that this prophecy of Malachi was given during that period when Nehemiah had gone back to report to the king. Because during that period, you'll never believe what happened. Well, maybe you know already. But if you don't, let me tell you. Just look at Nehemiah 13. Now, just a little bit of background. When they were rebuilding the walls, they were under constant pressure from enemies of the kingdom that were saying, don't build, give up, give up. These people were constantly trying to frustrate the people of God in their building project. And some of these people, we know their names. Tobiah was one, for example. But in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah has gone back to report, because it says there that, uh, verse 6, During all this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king and came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done. Well, what was the evil that Eliashib had done? Well, I'll tell you. He had emptied the best rooms in the temple and made them into a penthouse suite for Tobiah, the very person who had been frustrating them in building the walls. It was as if he said, Nehemiah's gone. I know you gave us a lot of bother in the past, but we all like you really. Half of us are related to you. Why don't you move in? We'll throw all of the grain out of the storehouse. We'll move move this out. We'll move that out. You can have the best rooms in the temple. Just imagine that. Now, that wasn't the half of it. I mean, it's bad enough to have the enemy living in the temple, but what it meant was that everything that should have been in those rooms had been thrown out. So they were no longer collecting the tithes because there was nowhere to put the tithes, which meant that all the singers had to be laid off because there was nothing there to give to the singers. All the workers in the temple had to be laid off because there was no money there to pay the workers. Everyone went back to their villages. And all the temple worship stopped. 
Just because of this attitude. Anything goes. Anything goes. Now these were the leaders of the people. And you saw the calibre of them. The moment that Nehemiah's back is turned, this is what they do. This is what they do. And when people get that far away from God, don't think that there's a nice little club where everyone who's running away from God bands together and gets on really well. The reality is that when you stop getting on well with God, you stop getting on well with everyone else as well. So there was tensions everywhere. I mean, even the people who wanted to rebel didn't respect the priests. How could you respect leaders that did that kind of thing? So there was this terrible, terrible sort of (laughs) crevice, really, running right the way through the nation. Fathers were away from the children, the children away from us. Everyone was away from the Lord, except this little faithful remnant that we read about, where they talked to one another, remembered the Lord, and the Lord remembered them. And it's to those kind of people that God is talking. He's saying, listen, I know no one's listening to you at the moment. I know no one's taking you seriously. I know that when you say, hey, there's a better way of doing things, they all say, oh, don't disturb it. Don't rock the boat. You know, don't cause any problems. You know, we've found a way of compromising with this Tobiah. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, don't compromise with him. And they're saying, shh, we don't want to know you. Down you go. Trample on you. Be quiet. And God speaks and he says, there's coming a day when those who've been trampled underfoot will be the ones who'll be doing the trampling. Not that you want to bring vengeance on the people. You want to do something about the compromising attitude. You want to stamp the compromising attitude out of the nation. That's what you want to trample underfoot. And you want to realise that what God is saying to this little remnant of people, and I don't want to have a remnant theology here, because I do believe that God's coming back for a glorious church. But you know, it's going to be a glorious church where people have understood God's heart. It's not just going to be... I mean, someone said to me once, God's not coming back for a fat bride, he's coming back for a fit bride. (laughs) It's not that he's just trying to get everyone in. He's still got his standards. And God has got his standards. I hope he's going to be a great, glorious bride, you know. I'm believing for that. But I believe it's going to be the bride that he wants, that shares his passion and shares his heart, that's not given over to compromise. And here in this passage, it says, and I love this, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Have you ever stopped and asked, why is he arising with healing in his wings? It's because people have been hurt. It's because people are sick. It's because people have been despised and trampled on. He's arising with healing in his wings. He's saying to you, look, if you are depressed and you are down because of the condition of things, if you are saying, how long, Lord, is this nation going to be like this? The son of righteousness is going to arise. The son is going to break forth. He's going to rise upon you in the full blaze of day. And darkness is going to flee from his presence. He's going to bring us out of the dungeon of despair because the sun of righteousness is rising on us. And he's going to come with healing in his wings. He's going to heal everyone who's been disappointed and crushed and carried the burden of these things for years. And some of you have, I know. 
you sort of feel the pain of, how much longer, Lord? (laughs) And he's going to come with healing in his wings. What else does it say in verse 2 of chapter 4? And you shall go out. That's just a declaration of liberty, isn't it? And he's also saying, and you will be well fed, like stall-fed calves. Just think about those statements. They have a very familiar ring, don't they? He's saying this, that there's sunrise upon the faithful, there's healing for the crushed, there's liberty for the enslaved, there's prosperity for the impoverished. What does it remind you of? It reminds me of the ministry of Jesus, how he began. When he quotes those words from Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Now, we talk about the great day of the Lord and we know that we're talking about a day which is to come. But when Malachi wrote these words, he was looking at two things in the future that because they're like twin peaks looked at from a distance, they merge into one. In the Old Testament, you don't always get a clear demarcation between the Lord's first coming and the Lord's second coming. And in some ways, that's good because one of the things that we do today is we make sometimes too big a gap between the Lord's first coming and the Lord's second coming. There are big discussions. There's this wonderful phrase that sounds very great and glorious called an over-realized eschatology, which means that people are claiming from the Lord's second coming too much into his first coming. So in other words, they'll say, but surely, you know, the Lord has come. Shouldn't we know his bounty and his blessing and his provision? And there are others who are saying, no, that's an over-realized eschatology. That is yet to come. That's second coming. And there's this big discussion amongst Christians as to which bits that you should attribute to the Lord's first coming and which bits you should put towards the Lord's second coming. And I feel that very often we get it wrong because we are so busy trying to work out which bit belongs where. Hmm? No, He's going to come to judge. Well, that means there's no judgment now, does it? Hmm? No? He's come to save. So does that mean every aspect of salvation is now or is there some aspect of salvation future? There are simple little phrases you can use like the Lord uh, has saved us, he is saving us and he will save us. The three tenses of salvation. You can then structure it even more and say he's saved my spirit, he's saving my soul and he's yet to save my body. That is true as well. Nice and tidy. But there are so many times when it isn't that tidy. I tell you, if you'd heard Jesus preach when he came that first time and you had been oppressed and you had been downtrodden, hope would have risen in your heart. And you wouldn't have said, oh, I hope this man comes back in 2,000 years and sorts this all out, (laughs) or 3,000 years, because you'd believe that the transformation was actually in process then. No wonder the Samaritan woman goes running. I've met a man who told me everything I ever did. First man she'd ever met who hadn't left her feeling condemned. Jesus came, he turned things upside down. In his preaching, you know, those who thought they were something became nothing. And those who thought they were nothing became something. 
He'd say to people, when you pray, you mean we can pray? We were told that it was only the professionals who could pray. No, Jesus said, when you pray. And he was turning everything upside down. So much of this, you could say, happened when Jesus came the first time. Didn't the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings? Didn't he preach good news to the poor? So that those who felt bound were released. He did so much. Don't let's despise what he's already done. But let's realize there's more to come. There's more to come. And don't be surprised too if when the Lord comes, he actually does things differently from that which you expect. There may be a sense in which some of this is spiritual. I know I meet people who've read all the end time prophecies and they're really looking forward to kicking the living daylights out of some people because they think that's what the second coming is going to be about. You know, the Lord's coming for judgment and we're going to be able to take part in that judgment and I'm looking forward to trampling certain people under my feet. You know the way that some people talk? You know, they're going to get their comeuppance on that day. Hey, listen, a lot of people thought like that when Jesus came the first time. They thought he was going to kick the Romans out. They thought he was going to do it this way. They thought he was going to establish his kingdom this way, that way and the other way. And what did he do? He took them all by surprise. He died on a cross and they all thought, what's the point of that? (laughs) I didn't expect him to do that one. Okay. And don't be surprised if when he comes again, it doesn't quite fit exactly what you're anticipating. I talked to a very famous preacher once. He said, I know I've been right about the Lord's second coming at least once in my ministry. He said, I just wish I knew which one it was. Because, you know, there are just so many things that we're trying to embrace and so many things that we're trying to allow the possibility that you're going to be surprised. You know, when you think you've got it all sorted, just allow that possibility that God can still surprise you. God can, there's a day of reversal coming. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to put the things all the right way up. But I know it's going to be good. And I know I'm looking forward to it. And what I'm preaching on tonight is that the, the first thing that you've got to realize if you're a father is you've got to be re-envisioned. If you're a child, you've got to be re-envisioned. You've got to see what God's big picture is. Because to be honest, so many of the tensions that occur between fathers and children are about petty things. Even in families, they're so often about petty things. You know, we fall out over this or we fall out over that. It's because we're not seeing the wholeness of what God wants to do. He wants to bring in a complete new order. Isn't that incredible? Heaven and earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Doesn't that make our petty squabbles look silly? We need to understand this big reversal. If you're so full of yourself, you won't speak to someone else. There's going to come a day, you know, when God's going to turn it all upside down. And it could be that the very person you despise is going to be your boss. You just don't know what God's going to do, do you? But you've got to have a heart that's open to whatever God wants. Let me move on. And I won't spend so long on these other two points. It's a day of rediscovered righteousness, you know. I said there are some things that are a little bit difficult to preach here. We're very much new covenant people. And when we're thinking about the Lord's judgment, we struggle a bit. But we also struggle a bit when we think about Moses. What do we need to know about Moses? Moses, he he was the one who brought in the temporary covenant that we don't need anymore. 
And that's true. I mean, Galatians makes the point really clearly. You know, that was the schoolmaster brought in to lead us to Christ. Once you've reached Christ, what need we the schoolmaster? Sets out a narrow way that leads to life. When you found life, who needs the narrow way? We've probably all heard these sort of things said. And yet, here's this verse where it says in verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. I want to say this to you. Look, I don't believe we're under the law. I know we're not under the law. I know that we've been redeemed from the law. But that doesn't mean to say the law has no relevance. The law should now be your checklist. I'm not talking about all the little rules and regulations which were just aspects of ceremonial law. I'm talking about the moral law. God has not deviated from his moral law. What he said to Moses about his character and his requirements, they haven't changed. What has changed is this. That we're no longer living under an instruction book without the power to fulfill its requirements. I mean, living under a book which tells you how to live when you haven't got the power to do it must be the most frustrating thing in the world. Must be like having one of these car repair manuals when you don't have a toolkit or something like that. You know, you, you read it before you go to bed and think, well, it must be nice to undo that nut and open the you know, this, this and deal with that, but I just haven't got the wherewithal. And some people read the Old Testament and think, I just can't do this. It's because they don't know that there's a power that we have in the power of the Spirit because Christ has died to set us free from the curse of the law, not so that we don't have to fulfill it, but so that we can fulfill it and we live it. You know, there is a change in the law. It says the death of the high priest brings in a Change in the law. What's the change in the law? It doesn't mean that the moral law is now thrown out. It actually means that the moral law now dwells within. The change in the law is this. It went from being an external code to being an internal code. Someone said it brilliantly. They said, when you see it like that, every command becomes a promise. So in other words, when it says, you shall not, commit murder at one time that was a command that hung over us now it's a promise of God's grace to our hearts that if you live in obedience to me and you walk my way I'll tell you what you shall not commit murder if you live according to my way and walk in my light you shall not commit adultery if you live my way and walk in my light you shall not covet and every commandment by God's grace, can become a promise. We're free from the law in that it no longer hangs over us, but by God's grace it lives in us. And the law of God is written on our hearts. That's what God wants us to know. Now, it speaks of Elijah. Now, everyone connects Elijah at this point to the verse that we're really focusing on. The hearts of the fathers turn to the children and the children to the fathers. But let me say this to you. Elijah was the person who, before he turned fathers' hearts to children and children turned to fathers, he turned the nation's heart back to God. 
And when he was turning the nation's heart back to God, you know, he was weeping on the inside because the way that they treated the commandments of Moses. Why do you think he ran to Horeb? It was because he went to the place where Moses had received the law. And when he was standing there, he was saying, Lord, Lord, this people, they've broken your covenant. They've they've rejected your prophets. Lord, what are we going to do with this people? And you might say to yourself, but hold on a minute. Hadn't he just turned the nation back to God? But you know, we've already seen this. You have to do more to keep them there. We've seen that the people came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the temple. And then they started saying, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point? You know, we all got punished, but God's given up punishing people now. We might just as well do as we like. And Elijah knew you can turn the people back to God on Mount Carmel. But you need to do more than that if you're going to keep people living in God's presence. That's why he went back to Sinai. That's why he cried in the presence of God, God, what am I going to do? And that's when God said to him, I've got a fresh commission for you. You're going to appoint Elisha, Hazel, Jehu. And they're going to fulfill things that you haven't been able to fulfill. You see, there's more to what God wants to say. And God is wanting to say to us today, listen, righteousness has to be rediscovered. The church has to rediscover righteousness. We're not very good at it. When we start getting into holiness, we get legalistic. But there is a holiness that's got nothing to do with legalism. There is a holiness where you live right before God and it's not about, you know, um, lipstick or not lipstick or this and not that. It's, it's about having a heart that's right before God. I heard one preacher say, the way that some people live, you'd think Jesus died on a clothesline, not on a cross. <laughs> because they think that holiness is all about what you wear and what you do. It's about the inside. Now, I know the inside expresses on the outside. But you can't get to the inside, from the outside. You know, you can tell people, when you come to church, you've got to dress like this. But in the end, that's not going to change them on the inside unless God's done something on the inside. And if God's really done something on the inside, then sooner or later it'll manifest on the outside. It might take a little while, but it'll get there in the end. And we need to rediscover righteousness. If we're really believing for a a spirit of Elijah in these days... We're going to have to believe for someone who's going to hammer away at righteousness and keep saying to us, until the church gets righteous, we're not really going to see the power of God. Until we say goodbye to compromise, we're not going to see the power of God in the nation. And we need to hear this. The last thing that children need is dithering fathers. Because I tell you this, children don't put up with it, do they? (laughs) They might see things too black and white. But one of the problems is that that some of us that have gone grey see things grey. Everything's gone grey, you know? There are no longer any standards. Once we saw things black and white, now everything's grey. I don't think God wants it like that. There is a place for, for wisdom and balance, and I know all of that. But there also has to be clarity. And you're not going to be able to get the children's hearts to turn to the fathers if the fathers see everything grey when the children see everything black and white. It just isn't going to happen. There's got to be some meeting along the way. And righteousness is part of the key. 
you know, some of those youngsters that are turning to the Lord, because we're really seeing a revival in the youth in this nation at the moment. And some of these youngsters that are turning to the Lord are coming through with such a commitment to righteousness that it's going to put the rest of us to shame unless we get our act together. So there needs to be a rediscovery of righteousness. Listen to what it says. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, don't just link that with the verse that comes after. Link that with what comes before. Elijah's not just going to turn hearts. He's going to turn us all to God, that kind of spirit. Now, this has had a partial fulfillment, hasn't it, already? In John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist came, what did John the Baptist do? He brought a spirit of repentance. He prepared the way of the Lord. And in Jesus' day, there was a fulfillment of this scripture. There was an early fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus, just straight after the intertestamental period. You do realize that where it just goes a blank page, there's quite a few hundred years. But it's only a few hundred years. And then you get all of this fulfilled. Jesus acknowledged John the Baptist as being in the spirit of Elijah. And what did he do? He prepared the way of the Lord. He said, make straight the way of the Lord. Every valley will be exalted. Every mountain will be brought low. He made a straight path for Jesus. And we've got to see that same thing happen again. There's got to be a return to righteousness. And I say a rediscovery, because as far as I'm concerned, there's a day before the day. Do you understand what I mean by that? Before the great and awesome day of God, there's going to be a day when things begin to change. And what that great day of the Lord will be, will be the revelation of how much has changed. So I'm believing for that day. I'm looking for that day. I'm looking for people that will rise up in the spirit of Elijah and call us back to righteousness. And we've got to see that. And we've got to see a church that rediscovers righteousness. And we've got to see fathers that rediscover righteousness. So that they can encourage the young men and the young women that are discovering righteousness. We've got to see that. And then the third thing I want to say to you is this. That there's a day of rejoicing over reconciliation. Because it goes on and says this about Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And I do want to preach the last part of the verse. Lest I come, says the Lord, and strike the earth with the curse. As far as I'm concerned, this big statement, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, is an absolute must It must happen. If it doesn't happen, the earth is cursed. It's as simple as that. And I think we're in some extent experiencing something of that because we're not in the fullness of blessing because we are not really seeing the hearts of the fathers turn to the children the hearts of the children turn to the fathers. If we saw that, the earth would be a much more blessed place than it is today. Families would be more blessed. There would be a transformation in the earth. Fathers are turned away from children. Children are turned away from fathers. And it's true in the church spiritually and it's true in the nation in households as well. Anyone who's looked at what's happening in whole sections of the community will say, where are the role models? Where are the role models? 
Because fathers have turned their hearts away from the children. Let's nail this thing down together. This is the thing that has to happen. I say we're cursed without it. Why do I say that? And I don't just mean the church. I mean the world is cursed without this. Because Jesus says, doesn't he, in John chapter 13 and verse 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you have loved one for another. When the love goes out of the church, the light goes out in the world. Is that clear? When the love goes out of the church, the light goes out in the world. Because if we don't love one another, then what's the world going to see? Jesus says to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. How are we going to let our light shine? Well, according to Jesus, it's by loving one another. It's by loving one another. It means fathers loving children and children loving fathers, crossing generational divides. Difficult things. Where we don't see eye to eye because we don't do things the same way. But I'm preaching in visioning tonight because I think we can see things the same way. I think if we start seeing things the way the Lord sees things, there'll be common ground. If we start looking for that righteousness, if we start looking for that reversal, if we believe for justice, do you know what stirs the hearts of so many young people? I've worked very closely with Christian Aid and some of these other things. Do you know what they're discovering? Young people have got a passion for righteousness. A passion for righteousness. They want to see injustices put right around the world. They've got a passion for righteousness. And we've got to have a passion for righteousness too. We've got to have a commitment to see injustice go. We will find common ground. So often, the young people look at the older ones and think... You are just tinkering with trivialities whilst the big issues of the world are passing you by. And then you ask the older people and they say, well, the young people are just tinkering with trivialities while the real issues of the world are passing by. Well, let's agree on what the real issues of the world are. And let's all stop tinkering with trivialities. And we'll soon find our hearts turn towards one another. We'll find a level of unity. And I believe that God wants to see this. There's no true Christian testimony without love. And the hearts have to turn in both directions. And it's so clear as you read Malachi that when it's talking about fathers, it's talking about spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders in the nation. You know, I believe that Malachi prophesied hope. I think what we're talking about tonight is hope. There will come a day. There will come a day when the hearts of the fathers turn to the children. And the hearts of the children turn to the fathers. There will come a day. This prophecy will be fulfilled. We saw a measure of fulfillment, a big measure of fulfillment, during those years of Jesus' earthly ministry. But we're going to see an even bigger measure of fulfillment. It's coming. It's coming. It's got to happen. And we've got to prioritize this. We've got to prioritize this. It's time to stop just loving those we like. Hmm? And learning to love everybody. And not with this kind of Christian nonsense which says, Lord, you know I can't stand so-and-so, you love him through me. That's just not on. (laughs) God does not see you as a drain pipe (laughs) that he can just pour his love through. You have got to love people. You've got to love people. Some of us have been hurt by our fathers. Some of us have been hurt by our children. 
We've got to forgive. We've got to forgive. Some of us have felt rejected by our fathers, misunderstood. Some of us have been abused by our fathers, disabused, beaten, gone through all kinds of things, rubbished. You forgive. You've got to turn your heart. This is not a chauvinistic message. You say, why are you not talking about mothers? Well, because we're all children in some ways. We're all children. So this is an inclusive message. Every one of us can find somewhere where we can look and say, I need to show more respect back in that direction. My heart needs to turn. It's time I forgave. It's time I let go. It's time I stopped talking about that generation as if it was, you know, (laughs) written off in God's heart. It isn't. And fathers, you know, God's not writing the fathers off. God's trying to raise the fathers up. We've been through some crazy things in church in the last 20, 30 years. I've been through most of them. I've seen it. Let's all raise up the young men and get rid of the old ones. Whoever said that? (laughs) I was meant to raise up the young men and keep the old ones, wasn't it? We need need to to get hold of God's heart here. We need to be re-envisioned. I want to pray into this. Father, as we come before you, we just cry out to you now and say, Lord... Lord, this is a word that we need to take hold of. We need to be re-envisioned. There is a day of reversal coming. There is a day of rediscovered righteousness. There is a day of rejoicing over reconciliation. Lord, let it be soon. Let it begin now. Lord, let that day before the day be today. Lord, let's anticipate these things and cry out to you, Lord, for the reality and the full revelation of them. We want to say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But even as we say it, Lord, we know that there's much for us to do in preparing the way. Lord, raise up people in the spirit of Elijah. Lord, speak to our hearts. Let us know the calling of God on our lives. And let us seek to fulfill it. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.